Well, good morning, everyone. Let's turn to First Timothy. We've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to his young co-worker, Timothy, one who he called his true child in the faith. And Paul wanted Timothy to remain on there at Ephesus. They had worked together there for a while and uh, deal with a number of problems that he was aware of there and uh, to help set the church there on the right course. Uh, just a kind of an overview here. Verses 1 through 5 give us the setting of the letter. And verses 6 through 11 deal with some of the false teachings <clears throat> that were taking place. Verses 12 through 17 contain Paul's personal experience of the true gospel and then kind of a doxology when he thinks about the true gospel right at the end of that section. And then... The verses that we'll look at this morning, verses 18 through 20, are Paul's charge to Timothy. The King James says, this, this charge I commit to thee. The New American Standard says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. So it seems to me like Paul is thinking in military terms here just as he is at the end of the verse where he talks about fighting the good fight. I think this charge or this command is kind of a, a military way of thinking what Paul was assigning Timothy to. Uh, he had a charge to keep in the great warfare against light and darkness between truth and error. So... Timothy was to think of himself as one who had been commissioned, one who had been set aside or set apart for a great campaign against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So before we go on, I think we will again <clears throat> read this first chapter. It's just 20 verses, and uh, it's, it helps us get the flow of the section, the, this uh, latter section that we're going to look at this morning. I wonder, Ryan, would you be able to read this? Chapter 1 to us. Okay, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men strained from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. 
But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Well, may God help us to understand this section of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, a very, I think, important section to teach us some important things about the Christian life. He starts out here in verse 18 where we're starting today. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. Now, there's a sense in which we all have this charge, this command, because the gospel has been committed to us. Think about that. The gospel has been committed to us, each one of us that's a Christian. And we are to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that's in us. That should be something that's on our mind when we get up in the morning. Am I ready? Am I ready? I've got a charge to keep today. But, of course, this was a special charge that Timothy had in relationship to the guidance of the early church, um, especially here at Ephesus. He'd been appointed and anointed for the care of that church. And Paul points this out to him a number of times. He says that this this, uh, charge was in accordance with prophecy prophecies previously commended to him or concerning him. You see that there in verse uh, 18 again. My son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. So um, this was something that Paul was reminding Timothy of, something that had happened in the past. Uh, He'd received, uh, Timothy had received a special giftedness and uh, prophetic confirmation through the laying on of hands. Let's turn to another place where Paul brings this up. 
here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He says to Timothy, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So Paul was emphasizing to him what, had, what God had done for him in the past, not just saving him, but giving, us, giving him a special commission. Uh, actually, Paul brings this up in Second Timothy also. Let's just turn there real, real quickly. Chapter 1. Second Timothy, chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which was in you through the laying on of my hands. So, uh, just, just reminding Timothy that God had saved him and called him and given him a special commission, a special charge. You might say it this way. Timothy was a commissioned officer in the army of God, and he should not neglect that sacred service. That was what Paul was emphasizing to him here. He must fight the good fight. That's how he ends this verse 18. You may fight the good fight. And I think when we consider that verse, we should realize he's not just talking about one battle. It was a whole campaign, a whole warfare that would continue, out, continue on throughout Timothy's life here on earth. He'd been called and commissioned for this. And again, I would say there's a sense in which that's true for all of us. We all have a ministry, a place of service, and all ministry involves warfare. You'll have to fight the flesh in order to serve God and others. If you're really going to serve God and others, you're going to have to fight the flesh. Uh, there's just easier things to do than serve God and serve others. At least easier on the flesh. But God has called us to service. You know, they talk about someone who's in the army or one of the branches of the military. Well, he's in the service. Well, we're in the service. If you're a Christian, we are to serve our king, our commander. You'll also have to fight satanic opposition. If you're going to serve God, you're going to have to fight Satan. I'm talking about the fact that our ministry, our service, it always involves warfare, fighting the flesh, fighting Satan. And on top of that, you're going to have to battle the world system if we're going to serve God and serve others. They do not want you to serve God, and they teach you a different thing than serving others. The world says it's better to receive and be served than it is to give and serve. So you're going to have to fight that that. Pressure from the world. So, 
The point I'm making here is that all Christian ministry involves warfare. As Charles Wesley put it, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. I don't know that last part where he says a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky, if he's talking about his or others. But it doesn't matter because that's exactly what, that's what uh, Paul told Timothy. He said, by, by doing this service that you've been called to, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Paul points Timothy specifically then to two areas that are vitally important in this warfare, faith and a good conscience. Keeping, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So, faith and a good conscience. Now, he's actually already mentioned those two things together back up in verse 5. If you remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So there he mentions faith and a good conscience together. And he puts them together again in chapter 3, verse 9. He's actually talking about the qualifications for a deacon here, but he says, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Faith and a clear conscience. Something that Paul knew were vital in the Christian life, and he mentions them together a number of times. So I want to just spend a little time here concerning these two important aspects of the Christian life. What's the victory that overcomes the world? We're talking about the warfare we're in. What's the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. We're told that in 1 John 5, 4. The great fight that we are to fight, he's talking here about uh, that you may fight the good fight. What, what's involved in this good fight? Well, he tells us that it's the good fight of faith. Turn over to chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, taking hold of eternal life, to which you were called. So it's, it's a fight, but it's a fight that has to be undertaken in faith, a good fight of faith. It's one of the essential weapons in our arsenal. Even though things are not going well, we must continue. There's times when things don't go so well in the battle, but we must continue to trust God. We cannot discharge our duty in this spiritual warfare that God's called us to if we're not armed with faith. It ju- you just won't fight the battle without it. You can't do it. And even if we lose a battle here and there and things may seem somewhat dark, we must have faith in the essential rightness and goodness of God's cause and in the ultimate triumph of God over all oppression and all opposition. I wanted to read an account here of John John Knox. He was a minister in Scotland uh, during the time of the Reformation in that area. And uh, 
He preached at a place called St. Andrews. Unfortunately, after a time of preaching there, uh, the political winds changed. This is a, it was an extreme form of political correctness, and he wasn't correct in what the politics was at that time. So not only was he put out of his pulpit, he was made a slave on a, on a ship. And uh, this is an account of when he was on that ship. Uh, it says, It was faith which gave strength to John Knox when he was in despair. Once, when he was a slave on the galleys, the ship came in sight of St. Andrews. It's there in Scotland. And he was so weak that he had to be lifted up bodily in order to see it. They showed him the church steeple and asked if he knew it. Yes, he said, I know it well. And I am fully persuaded, how weak that ever I now appear, that I shall not depart this life till my tongue shall glorify his godly name in that place again. Faith. He said, I'm not, it looks bad right now. I can't even, I can't even lift my body up to look at the place where I used to preach. But God's going to bring me through this. And he did. He preached there again. There's no way we can win if we don't trust God and believe that Christ has already won the victory for us, the victory over sin and death and hell. Uh, they've been defeated. As Paul says in another place, thanks be to God who always gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But just as important as faith is, we must also maintain a good conscience. In fact, there's no way you can have biblical faith if you don't keep a good conscience. We must seek to live in accordance with what we say we believe or else our conscience will condemn us. It's just the way God set us up. A good conscience is one that's well informed in regard to what's right and one that honestly follows what it believes is right. That's what a good conscience is. If we go against our conscience in a consistent manner, we will make shipwreck of our faith. That's what uh, Paul talks about here in, to Timothy. He said, keep faith in a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. As one person said, faith dies in the presence of a guilty conscience. Faith dies in the presence of a guilty conscience. So, we want to talk about this thing of a, a good conscience here. It's such an important part of the Christian life. I just felt like it would be We've looked at it before, but it's, it's uh, something that's worth spending time considering. First of all, what is the conscience? When we talk about a conscience or a good conscience, generally we have an idea of, of what it is, but it's not that easy to define. I'll give, I'll give you Webster first here. He says that it, it is moral judgment that opposes 
the violation of a previously recognized ethical principle and that leads to feelings of guilt if one violates such a principle. Now that's a little wordy. But the idea is, is that we have an inward moral monitor. This conscience is like an inward moral monitor, a kind of inner voice that tells us certain things are wrong, and if we do these things, we feel guilty. From the scripture, as we understand the scripture related to this subject of the conscience, we see that the conscience is actually a wonderful gift from God to help us discern right and wrong. It's an inward witness to our moral responsibility before God that Paul tells us all human beings have some degree of. Everybody has something of a conscience. Let's turn back to Romans. Chapter 2. Verse 14. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. So, He's saying even these Gentiles, people without the Bible, without the law, they have a law written on their heart. And that's part of what is involved in this conscience. And uh, every person has that to some degree. It's, it's just part of being made in the image of God. And actually it's an irrefutable testimony to his existence. If you go clear back to the beginning of mankind. This, this conscience, this inward moral witness, is what spoke to Adam and Eve after they'd sinned, before God spoke to them about their sin. Let's turn back there. Genesis chapter 3. This is a situation right after Adam and Eve had sinned. And we'll start with verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid myself. So what's happening here? 
even before God had come, come to them, they made these fig leaves, sewed these fig leaves together. Why'd they do that? Because they were experiencing what we call a guilty conscience. They made these coverings. But like all man's efforts to deal with true moral guilt, apart from Christ, the fig leaves don't work. And when they sensed something of the presence of God, they still hid themselves. They thought they were covered. They knew they weren't covered. They knew that this did not deal with their guilt. They still hid themselves from God because they did not have a good conscience. And really at this point in their lives, in Adam and Eve's lives, they'd done what Paul talks about here to Timothy. They'd made shipwreck of their faith. What faith they had in God, they'd made shipwreck of. Here's a quote from Isaac Watts that brings this out, I think. He says, Preserve your conscience always soft and sensitive. If but one sin force its way into that tender part of the soul and is suffered to dwell there, the road is paved for a thousand iniquities. That's what happened at the fall. The way was paved for not just a thousand iniquities, but billions upon billions of iniquities. So, besides just that terrible area of sin, what are some of the other effects of a guilty conscience? And I'm thinking here primarily of professing Christians. What happens when we have a guilty conscience? Well, one thing that happens is there can be very little assurance of a present right relationship with God. Assurance withers under the weight of a defiled conscience. Not only assurance, but so does joy. Joy and a violated conscience are incompatible. As Paul says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But the other side of that, of course, is that this person will be unhappy if he approves things that condemn him, things that condemn him in his conscience. You can't be happy that way. There's no joy there. Thomas Akempis said, Have a good conscience, and you shall ever have joy. Keep your conscience clear and clean and good. Another thing that a guilty conscience will rob us of is peace. A guilty conscience has no peace. It disquiets, it disquiets the soul. David said this back in the Psalms. He said, My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. It's just pressing him down, pressing him down. No peace. He goes on to say, I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. A guilty conscience, pressing him down. It'll tie you into knots. 
and beat you to a pulp. On the other hand, as one writer put it, a good conscience is a soft pillow. I think I know what he means because there's been times when I didn't have a good conscience and tried to go to sleep and I had a hard pillow. One last thing that I would mention is that you cannot have a confidence in, and boldness in witnessing to others with a bad conscience. just doesn't work. Your words just kind of hang there on your tongue. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. A good conscience, he says, the testimony of a conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in this world and especially towards you. He could have confidence in talking to those people because they had a good conscience. Good testimony there in his conscience that he's seeking to serve them and serve God. No confidence. No boldness in sin, in bad conscience. Consider Cain, after he killed his brother, he said this, Behold, thou, that is God, hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. He's, he was, he was going to live in fear, he says. I'm going to be fearful the rest of my life. Fear dominated his life. Why was that? Because he had a bad conscience about what he'd done. And isn't it amazing? The very thing that he had done is what he was afraid of. He'd killed his brother. Now he's afraid of somebody killing him. I found this to be an amazing thing that uh, the person with a guilty conscience, often accuses others of the very sin they themselves have committed. It's an amazing thing. This is what he was so worried about, because this is what he'd done. Well, the point of all this is don't violate your conscience. A good conscience is the palace of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, a paradise of delight, and the standing Sabbath of saints. Augustine said that. In other words, it's our place of peace and rest and protection and comfort. So keep a good conscience. But we need to recognize that there's a problem with our conscience. And that is, it's not always correct. Even though we should not disregard our conscience, not go against our conscience, because it is an inward moral witness, compass, it can give us wrong direction. To use an illustration, if you think of the, the conscience as an inward moral compass, if you have a compass and bring a magnet near it, 
it's going to be distorted. It won't give you the right direction anymore. Because there's another influence, you see. And this can happen with our conscience. Our conscience can be distorted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It can be desensitized or made overly sensitive by being uninformed or misinformed. So we need to realize this. Uh, it's, not, it's not possible to just constantly say, this is a ways back, but like Jiminy Cricket said, let your conscience be your guide. I, don't, I know some of you don't know who Jiminy Cricket is. But. <laughs> Sometimes we can feel guilty about things that we should not feel guilty about. If you're raised in certain families in the area around here and you don't drive a car that's been painted all black, you might, be, you might feel guilty about that. You really shouldn't, but you might. On the other hand, sometimes you may not feel guilty about things that you should feel guilty about. And that can happen if our conscience is seared or defiled. And Paul talks about this in relationship to what was going on there at Ephesus. Let's turn to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 here, 1 Timothy 4. But the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So it's possible because of lies and Satan and hypocrisy, those type of things, to have your conscience seared. That's why it's important not only to guard our conscience, we must also guide our conscience. We must inform our conscience and continually reform our conscience according to the Word of God. The scriptures are like a yardstick which we can hold up to our conscience to see if we're measuring things correctly. Here's just a very simple illustration for you children. I might think that this pulpit is about a yard across here. I just Well, it looks like about a yard. How do I know if it's really a yard? Well, I get one of these, a yardstick. I have something I can tell for sure if this is a yard or not. And if I put it on here, I find out, nope, I wasn't quite right on that. Well, see, that's what... That's what the scriptures are to do for our conscience. We might think something's right or wrong, but we need to hold the Bible up to our mind and our hearts and say, does, it, does what I think, does what I feel really go along with this? Because this is the standard. We have an objective standard to go by. We, we can be thankful. We should never go against our conscience, but we should always be thinking about 
is, is my conscience held captive to the Word of God? Am I really uh, going by, are my thoughts in accordance with what God has said? So we must not only guard our conscience, we must guide our conscience. And uh, we can be wrong. Really bad wrong about some things that we think are right. Consider this example. Prior to his conversion, Paul thought he should be opposed to Christ. And he was very conscientious about this and very zealous about it. He had a zeal for God, but it was a misguided zeal because it was not in accordance with knowledge. He, he knew some of the scriptures of the Old Testament, but he didn't understand them rightly. Let's, let's just look back at Acts chapter 26, because he tells us this. Acts 26 and verse 9. He's talking about his time of before he was converted. And he says this, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why did he think that? because he had the wrong ideas about what was right and wrong in terms of the gospel and in terms of Christ and in terms of who the Messiah was and all those things that he thought he had some understanding of. But he was wrong. See, conscience can only judge according to the principles known to it. And these principles are determined not just by what God has written on our hearts, but also by our parental teaching, by schooling, by social environment. A lot of things uh, affect our conscience. Paul had, Paul had some wrong teaching that he'd grown up with. And so he thought that he ought to do many things hostile to Jesus of Nazareth, uh, to Jesus' followers. So, consequently, he had a wrongly instructed conscience and was very stubborn and fanatical in what he, what he believed. His upbringing as a Pharisee had caused his thinking to be distorted, and in, ob- in obedience to a misguided conscience, he persecuted Christians. So the point I'm trying to make is is that our conscience must continually be educated with a correct understanding of God's Word. It must be informed through a disciplined, diligent, spiritual study of the Bible. I say spiritual because we have to have the Holy Spirit to guide us even in our understanding of truth and to teach us more and more about Christ. As Paul told Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know, we normally think of of that, you know, 
to use the Bible for somebody else. You have to use it that way for yourself, too, you know, uh, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Just as an aside here, let me just say something to the parents. And that is, we are shaping our child's conscience constantly by what goes on in the home, what they see, what they hear, and by the instruction they receive from the Word of God. We need to be teaching our children to maintain a clear, clean, blameless, scripturally informed conscience. And we teach that primarily by doing our best to maintain that kind of conscience ourselves. Clear, clean, scripturally informed conscience. So in closing then, I'd like to just uh, emphasize how we can gain and maintain a good conscience. First of all, we must be given a good conscience through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the only way you can have a truly good conscience, trusting Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We must own up to our true moral guilt before a holy God and look to Christ as our sin-bearer. It may seem strange, but... The first step to get rid of our guilt is to admit our guilt. But then we must put our total trust in the work of Christ. Admit our guilt and trust Him as our sin bearer. Totally trust Him. Who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God in order that he might cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So that's where you start. You start with Christ, recognizing that he has totally cleansed our conscience through his blood. And after we've become a Christian, we can maintain a good conscience by looking to Christ to keep us from sin and by looking to Christ when we have sinned. That's the only way you can maintain a good conscience. Looking to Christ to keep us from sin and then by looking to Christ when we have sinned. As Christians, we can draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We have to continually stand on the word of, of the gospel, the word of truth. As we brought out last week, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You're going to have to stand on that every day of your life if you're going to maintain a clear conscience. As the song says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, 
Upward, not inward, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. We should thank God that we were made creatures with a conscience. It's a, it's a wonderful gift. Think of what the world would be like if people did not have that inward moral compass. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible mess because of what people are doing with their conscience, going against their conscience and defiling their conscience and searing their conscience. But if there was no conscience, just even I'm, I'm thinking here, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. All these abortions that have taken place just in the, even in the United States. I'll tell you this, if people didn't have any conscience, it'd be a lot worse. You know, people know abortion's wrong. They have to push that, push that down, push that down, suppress the truth of that being a little human life in the womb. We should thank God that we were made creatures with a conscience. We should thank Christ for dying so that we can have a clean, clear conscience. And we should thank the Holy Spirit that he continues to reveal Christ to us so that we can maintain a good conscience. Let me close with just a few lines from a poem by Amy Carmichael. This uh, is called Foundations. She, She writes, Set our foundations on the holy hills, our city found firm on the bedrock of the truth, our wills, Settle and ground, cause us to stand to our own conscience clear, cause us to be the thing that we appear. Settle and ground us in thy word, the bedrock of truth, she says. Firm on the, found us on the firm bedrock of truth and cause us to stand to our own conscience clear, cause us to be the thing that we appear. Well, I'll stop there, but uh, we'll pick up there in this verse 20 next time.